Welcome to Solidarity Segments by Solidarity House. All of us here at the collective that runs Solidarity House have been involved in the police accountability and defund the police movements, aiming to demilitarize and redefine public safety for a long time. And the collective has provided space and resources for those pushing for community oversight here in Laramie, as well as for discussions about capitalism and the criminal justice system. Recently, in the passionate dialogue and predictable pushback on police reform in Laramie, one complex argument emerged, the necessity of policing to address sexual assault and domestic violence. The argument is that defunding the police means defunding resources that help victims and apprehend perpetrators. Others around the country have already answered this argument. For example, in the open letter concerning defunding Seattle, Washington police, a letter co-signed by several advocates in the greater Seattle area, entitled, Defunding Seattle Police and Redirecting Our Resources Will Serve, Not Harm, Survivors of Gender-Based Violence, the letter reads, quote, We are survivors, family, and loved ones of survivors, community-based advocates, attorneys, clinicians, and social workers working with survivors of gender-based violence. Collectively, we have decades of experience working to eradicate gender-based violence, meet the immediate and long-term needs of survivors, and to improve federal, Washington state, and local policy to support the survival and safety of people experiencing gender-based violence. It is because of that collective knowledge and experience that we support the call to divest from policing. We add our voices to that demand because research, as well as our own personal and professional experiences, demonstrate that policing, arrest, and incarceration as a frontline approach to violence further harms survivors of gender-based violence, especially Black, Indigenous, and people of color women, transgender, and gender non-conforming people. We must do better for survivors of gender-based violence and their families. Shifting enormous investments in policing will allow us to invest those resources in the support systems that survivors of gender-based violence seek and truly need, meaningful and reparative accountability for people who cause harm to others, and the prevention work that can help us eradicate gender-based violence." Unquote. There's much more in this letter. We will link this letter on our show description. In assessing this debate, I drew from my own experience assisting in legal and resource advocacy for victims of sexual assault and domestic violence a few years ago, but we wanted to talk to someone who'd been in the thick of it longer. Our friend Emily Cordo, who spent several years as an attorney for victims in Seattle and King County, where the defund movement is playing a serious role in city and county policymaking now. Before we hear that discussion, I'd like to ask a very important favor to those who like this content and want us to continue to make it available for free. Please become a subscriber for just $5 a month at patreon.com slash solidarityhouse. We do make a lot of content available and we do post bonus content for our subscribers, but your support also helps us pay the expenses of running the podcast and the commune itself which we continue to make available for collaborative political work, music and artistic creation, farming and food production, 
We're the real deal, a cooperative commune in Wyoming, and we need your help to keep doing what we're doing and talking about it on the podcast and bringing in change makers and advocates like Emily Cordo as guests. Who knows? You might be a guest on the show too. The reason you're listening is probably that you do many of the things we do, all of us fighting like hell for a better world, one that puts human needs before greed. If you can, please help us continue that work here in often hostile territory. Please go to patreon.com slash solidarityhouse and become a subscriber. Thank you. And now, here's the discussion with Emily Cordo, Sarah, and me on policing, sexual assault, domestic violence, and what a justice and human-based society might look like in relation to these things. Yeah, so we're here with Emily Cordo. You had uh, shared with me uh, a document uh, called Defunding Seattle Police and Redirecting Our Resources Will Serve, Not Harm Survivors of Gender-Based Violence. Why should we be talking about shifting resources from police departments to other places and specifically in the context of uh, sexual assault and domestic violence uh, situations? There are a lot of differences uh, from victim to victim and working with uh, victims of sexual assault and domestic violence for uh, a decade or so, uh, you see a lot of diversity. But one of the things that is really common to hear, and and I would say that the majority of my clients uh, would tell me, is that their experience dealing with police and dealing with the criminal justice system was more traumatizing than the assault itself. And uh, the system is not working for victims, either in terms of achieving just outcomes for victims or in terms of providing them with an experience that is empowering and allows them to uh, heal in some way. So when we have a system that's failing the public in terms of the public safety concerns and it's failing the victims, it seems to me that it's time to look for a better system. And what stood out to you um, about this particular call and what has stood out to you about other uh, calls for that diversion of resources? Where do you, where, where do you think um, these resources should be diverted to? There are a lot of different uh, ideas about how to approach um, resolving or responding to uh, crimes that involve um, gender-based violence. And um, one of the things that has been off the table for a long time in those kinds of cases are uh, less confrontational forms of justice. So for example, in the context of domestic violence cases, as I know you know, Matt, In in domestic violence family law cases, mediation is generally not allowed. Um, And the the rationale for that is that um, it would give the offender too much opportunity to manipulate the victim and that somehow the criminal justice system better protects them than a mediation would. Um, And similarly with rape victims, uh, for a very long time we have... um, Uh, acted as a society as though the only way of resolving those problems is um, by locking the offender in jail Um, and uh, not through any kinds of more restorative justice uh, uh, methods. And I think that given how badly the current system is failing, it is well worth time to explore options that are um, more victim centered um, and that are more focused on um, 
addressing the causes of the violence in the first place, um, providing opportunities for rehabilitation. One of the things that I think uh, is really needed is um, money for research into how we rehabilitate offenders. Most uh, programs that offenders go through after they, if they do uh, manage to get convicted and they do spend time in jail um, uh, or they're diverted and in any case, if they go through some sort of domestic violence perpetrator treatment, for example, um, we see very high rates of reoffense of people that come out of those programs. They're not working either. And I think part of the reason for that is that there's just a shocking lack of research into uh, how to uh, address these problems. These are not social problems that have been um, considered worth researching, and in fact, the, a lot of the the research that does exist uh, has you know has been restricted in terms of who has had access to it historically. So, um, I think investing both in new systems and in research to actually find ways of um, changing this, as opposed to simply cycling people through a criminal justice system that oftentimes result in greater recidivism. Um, than their rates of offense before they were incarcerated uh, makes a lot of sense. I'm really fascinated by the whole topic of restorative justice. Uh, you know, you're talking about like also options for rehabilitation. Um, I've been listening to this podcast uh, called uh, How to Survive the End of the World with uh, Autumn Brown and Adrian, Adrian Marie Brown. And they quoted, uh, in one of the episodes, they quoted somebody and I don't, I'd have to go back and look at the name of the person, but the the uh, the quote just really stuck with me is that uh, nobody enters violence for the first time by committing it. You know, and they're talking about this like this paradigm of you know we have this like uh, you know so you're either a victim or a perpetrator, um, but that you know sort of way of looking at it really seems to like you know kind of just kind of like blow that paradigm wide open of like you know, that's not clean like that. Um, I don't know, it seems like the restorative justice uh, approach has like way more potential for, I just look like actually sort of engaging with that. I mean, one experience that I had pretty routinely working with um, victims of sexual abuse is that um, there were a lot of them, a surprising number of them from my perspective, who despite, uh, you know, growing up in a country where um, criminal justice is sort of, uh, and retributive justice is, is indoctrinated in us as the only solution to crimes. There are a whole lot of the people that I worked with who, if they had a choice between seeing their offender put in prison and getting a genuine apology, um, not, not something that was forced for the sake of a guilty plea that would help them save some jail time, but a, a genuine recognition that they'd done something wrong and an apology, they would have preferred the apology. Um, and I think that that is something that is not a possibility within the criminal justice system where um, the confrontation between the two sides is the sort of fundamental element of the way that the system works. It's sort of, uh, it reminds me of um, in medicine, uh, I don't know if this is still the case, but for quite a while, uh, people would complain that um, patients where there were medical errors would could never get apologies from doctors, even when doctors wanted to, um, because their malpractice insurance wouldn't allow them to make an apology. Um, and and the, the same thing is sort of, I think, created when the criminal justice system um, and jail is the only option, uh, is that you eliminate the possibility of any kind of reconciliation or, um, or opportunity for a request for forgiveness and, and granting of it. Um, 
I, I would um, add that, you know, that this isn't always going to work. And, and there are definitely problems with the restorative justice methods that are currently in use. Um, but I do think that conceptually it has a lot more to offer than a system that um, offers only punishment of the offender and uh, other than maybe some financial compensation, theoretically, uh, no, uh, no kind of um, restoration of any kind of benefit to the victim. I think it's interesting hearing that from you because you were not a defense attorney. Uh, your clients were victims. Um, and so you, what you're saying on, on every level, uh, both in terms of what, how victims feel about police as well as uh, this uh, desire for a more, um, uh, a fuller and more uh, uh, restorative sense of, of justice, uh, you know, coming from someone who's, it sort of cuts against the narrative uh, that law and order really is the solution to gender-based violence. Yeah, I had an interaction uh, last weekend. I was at a Black Lives Matter protest and standing on the side of the road with a sign that said, uh, defund the police, fund community. And, um, you know, a lot of the people driving by were very supportive and sometimes people were less so uh, in this little rural town that I'm living in now. And uh, one person drove by and rolled down their window and they said, when you get raped, the police are not going to come and help you. And I, uh, for once, came up with in the moment the snappy retort that I would always want to be able to come up with, which was, yeah, they never do. <laughs> um, uh, you know, they're, they're really not there to help victims. It's a, a misperception of the way that the, the system works. Um, when people go to law enforcement with complaints of rape, um, there are a whole slew of ways that law enforcement officers make that experience traumatizing. And I could give you a lot of different anecdotes about that, ranging from police uh, trying to conduct an interview of a rape victim where they're asking her to describe the rape, um, trying to hold that interview in the lobby of the police department with people wandering around, um, being passed off from one officer to another so that the victim has to tell their story over and over again, um, interviewing, using interview strategies for interviewing the victim that um, are the same strategies they're trained to use when interrogating suspects. Um, right. You know, and that, that's on top of just simply the failure to investigate. Uh, you know, I really very rarely in my cases um, where I was working with victims would the police bother to go to the scene of the crime. Um, we had cases that criminal charges were initially declined um, and we had to fight to get them, uh, the, the, those cases, fight with the prosecutors trying to get them charged. Um, and the reason that we would, we would find out that the reason that they weren't charged was that the uh, witnesses that had come forward were never interviewed by the police. And so the prosecutor didn't even know that there were witnesses um, when they declined the charges. Um, and, uh, you know, we uh, had officers um, threatening victims with charges, uh, searching their houses rather than the offender's house when the, when the assault happened at the offender's house. Um, and, and, and that's not even getting to all the cases where there was actual sexual abuse by police officers. Um, so the, the really in, it, it, was, it was unusual in my experience for there to be a relationship of trust um, or a relationship of service between um, a law enforcement officer and my clients. I thought it was interesting and important to recognize in reading the 
Seattle document that the that the this diversion uh, of resources includes putting more resources into prevention methods, uh, which are proactive prevention methods envisioned by and constructed by you know the, this community of advocates. Um, and there's a myth that it's the police that prevent crime, uh, and I'm and it certainly seems like in this particular field of crime uh, that that's not the case. No, I mean, the rate at which people are actually, you know, convicted of rape is so low that it really has no deterrent effect that I can tell. Um, according to Rain, um, one of the major um, uh, national organizations dealing with uh, sexual abuse, uh, about five out of every 1,000 uh, sexual assaults results in the offender spending time in jail. Um, a lot of that is because victims don't report in the first place because they are well aware from reading the news um, that they would have a bad experience if they went to the police. So um, a very, you know, the rape is one of the most underreported crimes and particularly rape again um, by law enforcement officers is probably, I, I would guess probably the most underreported crime. Um, but even once it is reported, uh, there are so many ways that um, the system ends up failing and the offender is not held accountable that um, uh, it's, it, there's no reason for anybody who wants to offend to fear that they're, they're going to get in trouble for it at this point. Um, and, uh, so I think that really the, um, the things that we can do to reduce rape are creating cultural shifts, um, and attitudinal shifts that mean that people will hold the people that they know accountable. Um, that for example, on college campuses, that there will be so many young men in fraternities who are opposed to rape and who understand uh, what the red flags look like and um, care enough to look out for the women who attend their parties, that it will become uh, a thing of the past because of the peer pressure of those uh, students on the students who would want to offend. Um, that is, uh, in my view, a, a much more uh, viable strategy for reducing um, rape than the system that we have now, which is clearly not succeeding in that. The amount of racist cops you know, just in general is quite staggering. Uh, and if you, especially if one is not familiar with policing and, you know, kind of studying um, everything from FBI reports to, uh, to firsthand accounts of, of racist cops. And, and so that means white racist cops uh, dealing with uh, victims of color uh, as well, which, um, I can imagine can can only make things uh, you know just potentially in, in incredibly more traumatizing. Uh, probably even at, in the in the at the very least incredibly paternalistic and condescending. Uh, but at at worst, maybe much more uh, much more serious than that. No, I was just gonna say it reminds me of a story uh, I read a while ago about somebody who called the cops and then actually ended up getting arrested. Like they had called for a support like with domestic violence and then like they themselves got like you know, arrested. Like it, it yeah, it, that. Uh, that was a common occurrence uh, when, wow. I, when I worked in, in advocacy as well, uh, clients getting arrested and there was 
almost always either a race or class or both element to it. Yeah, there and there are definitely known case, uh, you know, quite a few known cases where law enforcement are responding to oftentimes a report of domestic violence um, and then um, sexually assault the victim. Um, so, for example, there was a 2014 case. Um, with uh, a, a, an officer named Jeffrey Graves, who um, went to a DV call, um, the uh, victim went to a hotel and he returned to her hotel room and raped her. Um, there were two hung juries and it resulted in a $225,000 settlement um, for the victim. Um, but probably the uh, most dramatic example of that was Daniel Holtzclaw in 2015 in Oklahoma, um, who was convicted of, uh, I believe, 18 counts involving eight different women, um, most of whom were, uh, most, if not all of whom were uh, black women um, and all, you know, very vulnerable uh, uh, women in general, uh, almost entirely. Um, and uh, so we know that this is happening. The fact that he got away with it for as many years as he did and was able to accumulate as many victims as he did is the best evidence that we have um, really of the fact that this may, is, is, is a probably a very widespread problem, despite the fact that we don't hear about it all that often, um, because it is very easy for people who are in positions of this much power to get away with it for very extended periods of time. It seems like the surprising thing about the Holtzclaw case was, you know, that he was caught, that he was prosecuted to the full extent possible, uh, and that he, you know, got sentenced uh, as, as fully as he did. Uh, I mean, I remember routinely fielding complaints uh, from uh, clients about everything from, you know, kind of minor or, well, you know, relatively minor kind of indignities to more serious uh, physical contact, unwanted physical contact. Yeah, it's like this really, really messed up, like, catch-22, right? Because they are inclined not to do anything and people know that. So then people don't report. And then, so they can just say like, Oh, well, this isn't a problem. Clearly. I mean, you know, we're seeing that already like here in, in, in regards to like the marching we've been doing, right. Where like, you know, they're like, well, we haven't gotten any reports of, you know, of incidents or what have you. And, you know, we're basically all over here. Like, yeah, why would we report to you? Because you're not going to do anything. And we know that. There was a um, uh, a study that was published in Police Chief magazine. Um, a, a, I don't remember exactly how long ago, but um, relatively recently. Um, and uh, what it found was that, and this again, this is just from within their own a police chief's review of um, domestic violence cases involving police in the media. Um, they found that uh, more than half of the police officers who were convicted of domestic violence kept their jobs. Um, so it's not even, uh, something that with a conviction that's enough to result in any serious, um, sanctions in a lot of departments. And I think that there's a, a real, um, uh, it's sort of a, a, a damned if you do, damned if you don't in the, the, the um, the more that we become aware of these kinds of cases and the more that it's in the news, the more that we're able to um, try to fight it. On the other hand, it also has the impact of uh, informing future victims of the degree to which they can't trust the police, which further depresses reporting. Um, so uh, it's really hard to, to know the way that that you know, dynamic affects um, the actual rates of reporting, which I think is a big part of why um, 
you know, there's so little research and so little good research, good recent research on um, rates of this kind of abuse in um, uh, among law enforcement in particular. Another factor in this that I noticed was that um, the deployment of addiction, victims' addiction uh, issues, uh, both to discredit them in terms of those interviews that you're talking about, um, and also to you know discredit them from complaining about police misconduct. Uh, and the sad thing about that was that you know some of the advocates uh, had that particular bug up their ass too. Um, that was like, well, you know, we know that a certain amount of our clients are addicts and addicts lie. So we're not necessarily going to take seriously even what they're saying about uh, police. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about advocate police relations. Um, but, uh, but I, I wanted to say that I, I felt like knowing so many people in my life who've struggled with addiction issues, and additionally, knowing like, a whole lot of privileged people in my life who've struggled with addiction issues and have never been discredited uh, for uh, for their you know reports about things. Um, it, it really was uh, very. It was often very frustrating to uh, kind of see that uh, deployed and used as a tool um, to marginalize and discredit people's um, testimonies and narratives. Yeah, that's definitely prevalent in domestic violence cases and also for sure in, in sexual assault cases. Um, one of the reasons that you see um, a lot of the, uh, you know, when I was talking earlier about how few cases actually result in um, somebody being incarcerated, another big drop-off point other than the, um, the number of people reporting, another big drop-off point is um, whether or not uh, the victim um, pursues charges and, and, want, and agrees to cooperate with law enforcement. Um, and a big part of the reason that they, uh, refuse to cooperate with law enforcement tends to um, relate to the way that they're being treated in the interviews. Um, and uh, a lot of times those interviews um, end up being interrogations of the victim focused entirely on the victim's past um, and what uh, what might, and, and you know, the police have, you know, arguments for why they need to do this, right? Well, if this information comes out at trial, it's going to affect the trial and so we need to know it now, right? Um, but when you're a victim or when you're a victim advocate, you can tell the difference between somebody who's asking, what were you wearing? Because they're implying that it's your fault you were assaulted because of what you were wearing versus somebody like me interviewing a client and going through those questions and having to ask them that kind of detail. Um, there are... Uh, uh, victims aren't stupid. In fact, most of them are, are very savvy because most of them um, are people who are vulnerable and who have been marginalized and victimized in the past. Polyvictimization is extremely common. Um, and so they're people who um, are very attuned to uh, people's attitudes and communicating with them about these kinds of issues. And um, when uh, police convey to victims that um, the system is not sympathetic to their um, to trauma and that uh, they are perceived to be the person at fault um, or simply that regardless of who's at fault, the um, officers and system are not invested in uh, resolving it in any way that's beneficial to them, um, they're very likely to, uh, to withdraw from the process. Obvious question uh, that might be asked is, well, there's going to be situations where people need to be detained. There's going to be situations where acts of violence need to 
be curtailed. Uh, in those instances, uh, shouldn't we have uh, a cop uh, doing it uh, as opposed to maybe some other uh, component uh, or some other um, agent of action who mm. is not equipped um, to do that? Uh, and that, I mean, not only applies to sexual assault, DV, um, but might also apply to just in general the entire dialogue and the entire question of, well, who's there to catch mm. the criminals? Mm -hmm. uh, and I know that, you know, we've been involved in a lot of, uh, of police accountability actions over the last uh, year uh, or so here in Laramie uh, and a real wave of them lately, especially. And I know that this has been something that's, you know, that's come up uh, mm. with people. What, um, well, surely, you know, we need something, uh, you know, we need some sort of of force mm -hmm. um, to protect us from the bad guys. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the thing that a lot of people like in answer to that question, right, is is looking at the statistics of like how often do police does police response actually like stop violence in progress or stop some sort of really any crime in in progress? Um, you know, and so that's like a good starting point, right? Because it questions that assumption of like that that law enforcement is going to be in its current iteration is going to be helpful in that situation. I remember one, one like sort of statement in particular was like, I'd rather have this person was saying like that they would rather have like a, a crisis person, right. With like a, a module of training in, you know, sort of, you know, physical like self-defense and or like defense of another or gun, you know, like, you know, use or something like, you know what I mean? Like that. Um, but that's not like the bulk of, of their training versus like a police officer is mostly training with a gun and like, and, you know, doing like versus, you know, and then has this like little module on the weekend about how to, you know, be nice to domestic violence victims. Like, because that's apparently what they do. They, you know, get, 6,000 hours of training on how to kill people and beat the shit out of them. And then they get these modular mm -hmm. uh, courses on alternating weekends in February mm -hmm. or whatever uh, on, um, you know, oh, and here's a little dash of mental right. health training and here's a little dash. Sensitivity of, training. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so when we've tried, you know, at the city level to try to bargain with them, uh, you know, with the city council and mm -hmm. with making demands, uh, the thing that the, you know, that the pro-cop kind of contingent comes back with is, okay, well, you know, instead of having to do six modules a year, mm -hmm. we'll make them do, you know, 10 mm -hmm. modules right. a year or something like that. And it's always, it's always really just treated as this very exceptional thing that they would receive any of that uh, alternative training. And they don't take it seriously either. Like, right, it's mostly taught by cops and they just sort of like blow it off, you know, in most cases, I think. Yeah, I've, I've done trainings um, that have had law enforcement or um, military types or JAG prosecutors um, in attendance. And um, my experience at those trainings where it, there was a live person who was speaking from the victim's perspective was that oftentimes um, I could get them um, to be engaged and to 
listen and learn a little bit. Um, but when the trainings are being done by people who um, don't have a victim-centered perspective, uh, I think they're probably pretty useless. I wanted to talk to you about this in particular. So in Laramie, um, as part of this, these ongoing protests and, and some productive, uh, somewhat productive city council meetings, so the LPD has kind of been put on notice um, uh, by people in the community that we want oversight uh, and that we want some redirected funding. Um, uh, they responded to this by, uh, after you know, a certain vote uh, took taking place, they responded to this by arresting um, how many people the next day after seven, not arresting seven, anyone. Seven so people were arrested yeah, yeah. and more were ticketed. Right. So their, their response to that action at the city level was to actually start arresting people um, more. Uh, so I thought that was pretty transparently political. But um, anyway, one response to this conversation came from a spokesperson for For Safe Project here in Laramie, which is the, the domestic violence shelter. Uh, and program, and that response was that they had a great relationship with LPD, and even said that defunding would jeopardize that great relationship that they had, which was curious on, on a number of levels. They acknowledged that it was an exceptional relationship. They acknowledged that we've been very worried about how, how our our clients would relate to the police, and We've told the police that we're very worried about our clients interacting with police. But I have to say, in this instance, with this chief, uh, and in these instances, this has been a great relationship. So please don't defund uh, the police. And it was a curiously political uh, kind of statement um, that, as I said, was they, when it was acknowledged to be exceptional. But my thought from a policy perspective was that that seems to hang a lot on whether or not that personal relationship is going to be cordial. Uh, and it ignores who has the power, I think, in that relationship. And it also ignores the possibility that even if they're right, that you, know, you could get a new police chief or you could get a completely different set of circumstances. And so are we really going to hang our hats on these particular cops being good cops. Yeah, like racism, gender-based violence is a structural problem and you're never going to solve it or, or even make much of a dent in it when you're focused on solutions that are reliant on individual people. One of the things that I think is relevant to this conversation is that prisons are a place where sexual abuse is rampant. And um, so putting people who, um, you know, this is, is not to imply that there's some sort of one-to-one -one relationship, but it um, is the case that there um, is a, a correlation between um, be people who are abused and who go on to abuse others. So when you take people who are, um, you know, uh, victim offenders, um, and then you put them in a situation to be victimized again, or to victimize other people uh, who uh, nobody cares about protecting, um, you are creating a situation that is um, going to uh, really, you know, exacerbate the prevalence of, of sexual abuse. Once we put people into that system, we are really abandoning them to more of the same. Um, and I think that that is something that we, uh, along with addressing how um, law enforcement works, dealing with um, the way that prisons are structured, uh, is a really essential element of uh, dealing with this.
One of the reasons that I, I left um, this field is that um, I really struggled with my ethical relationship with the court system. And um, don't get me wrong, I um, firmly support my clients and any survivors of abuse. Um, and I'm um, proud of the work that I did for them and I'm proud of them. That said, um, there was something very, always something very uncomfortable for me about um, assisting um, as a third party, not as the prosecutor or the defense attorney, but assisting sort of as a third party in actions that could potentially help result in somebody's conviction and send them to prison, um, a system that I feel is fundamentally um, unjust to all, everyone involved. So leaving it was, and then choosing to no longer be an attorney um, was in part about not feeling like I could ethically be an officer of the court anymore. Um, as somebody who is so aware of its uh, inadequacies. Um, I think that right now we're seeing opportunities for reform that are unprecedented. Um, but I think that dealing with it at a systems level is really the essential component. Um, in regard to the uh, petition that you, we were talking about earlier um, about uh, promoting restorative justice. Um, one of the, I, ha I had a, a conversation with a, a former colleague of mine who is a victim advocate in Seattle, and she um, brought up some really useful and uh, informative uh, points about the problems with the current system for restorative justice in King County, Washington, um, and the ways that uh, vict many victims complain about that process still being very offender focused um, and putting a lot of demands on the victim in terms of their time and their energy and their uh, that sort of thing that uh, uh, were not positive for them. So th there are complaints about that system. And when she told me those things, my initial reaction was to maybe feel a little bit defensive um, because I, I think that restorative justice is a really important um, direction for us to go in. But what occurred to me as I was discussing it with her is that, of course, the current restorative justice process is not working adequately because it was created within a system that is still racist and classist and not concerned with victims, um, nor with uh, uh, women, um, trans women, etc. And as well as male victims of violence who are oftentimes left out of the conversation entirely. Um, uh, so the, and the, you know, so these systems, so we've got this restorative justice system or process that's been created within a fundamentally flawed system. And the people who created this restorative justice model um, are the same people who are failing victims in the criminal justice model. Um, you know, the, we, we've got these same staff. So if you've got the same people running it, the same overarching structure, um, it, it, it's, it's a no-brainer that the current system for restorative justice would not be ideal. So um, that's why for me, it, you know, it isn't even enough to just say, oh, well, let's um, give more funding to current restorative justice models. Uh, really a sort of fundamental rethinking of the structure as a whole is, is going to be necessary if we're going to find solutions that are um, meaningful um, and beneficial for the victim, protective of the community, um, and uh, do something to help the offender uh, become less likely to offend. <laughs>